quick programming note about this week's episode. We've done it again and encountered yet another audio issue. Chris's mic is a little screwed up right after the break for a couple of minutes, uh, and then it does get better. (laughs) So as always, we are just performing excellence in every way. On to the show. I don't recommend it. Stop talking to your parents. Hello and welcome to another episode of Replaying Favorites. It's two friends who have watched different movies and are now watching the same movies and talking about them. I'm Chris Kelly. I'm Brie Callahan. It's a, it's a weird explanation of the premise, but we do it different every time. We should probably script the intro at some point. I'm going to put good money on the fact that we never do. <laughs> that seems unlikely. <laughs> so as we stumble through this introduction, let's stumble onto the fact that this week we are watching Troop Beverly Hills, a 1989 comedy starring Shelley Long. Brie, I know a lot about this movie. What do you know about this movie? That apparently Shelley Long is in it. <laughs> And I know who Shelley Long is, and I like her, and I think she made a mistake leaving Cheers. I have to assume that the two vaguely coincide, if not this movie specifically, I think probably leaving Cheers and doing movies had to have been an overlapping process for her. My memory, you know, the the sort of apocryphal story is that she felt like she was better than a TV show and was going to go on to do a movie career. And then it kind of fizzled out pretty quickly. But so you don't know a thing about this movie or the plot. I don't know anything about this. I don't know what the troop means. It could be a Girl Scout troop. It could be a G.I. Jane situation. I think we've both watched a couple of movies in this podcast where maybe we weren't totally clear on the plot. But like, for instance, in The Emperor's New Groove, I knew there was a llama. I have no foreknowledge of what Shelley Long could be doing in this movie or anyone else who's in it or anything about it. You know those movies that you owned on VHS when you were younger? And so they were put on repeat because there just weren't a lot of movies in the house. And they were really expensive. They used to charge like 30 bucks for a VHS in 1980s money. Yeah. So this was just one of the movies that was available. It was something that both my sister and I liked. One of the nice things about being a young gay boy with a little sister who's close in age is that you can do things like watch a Shelley Long vehicle and you have a plausible deniability. Yeah, that's nice. (laughs) That's really something most mothers and fathers should do for their young gay sons. It's like, give them that emotional support, man. It's important. Well, I can't wait to hear what you think about this movie when we come back from watching it. You always have this sort of manic smirk on your face when you assign me a movie that I'm Never sure if I'm supposed to read your excitement about assigning me the movie or your trepidation about assigning me the movie or a little bit of both. It's maybe a little bit of both in the same way that you might not have been fully confident assigning me 13 going on 30. I know this is not the best movie ever made. (laughs) I'm okay with it. I think we should watch some garbage sometimes and enjoy it. Please enjoy this garbage. I will. Hug it tight. And I'll hug it tight, and we'll both come back next week and talk it through. And by next week, we mean in two seconds. And (laughs) how? That's that's just going to be how we transition out to break. (laughs) Welcome back from the break. Hopefully you just watched Troop Beverly Hills. I know that we both did. I know I did. 
This is a 1989 comedy directed by Jeff Canoe. Is he not a household name in your household? Uh, he's not a household name in anyone's household, unless they're a huge fan of Revenge of the Nerds or V.I. Warshawski. The screenplay is by Pamela Norris, who had some background in TV writing before this. The cast, on the other hand, actually does have a bunch of really recognizable names. We've got Shelley Long, Craig T. Nelson, Betty Thomas, who went on to never act again, but did direct several movies, and a bunch of child stars, including debuts for Tori Spelling and friend of the podcast, Carla Gugino. Um, who is Tori Spelling? She has a very small role as the friend of the head Redfeather. Oh, okay. So it's interesting you say that these are household names because they're very extremely television household names. So the other kids who are in this movie are the neighbor from Small Wonder, the friend from Punky Brewster. I would say that overall, the vibe that I really got from this is that it was a TV movie that somehow got feature film money behind it because everybody is a TV star. There are a lot of things about this that have a very pilot episode feel to them. Troop Beverly yeah. Hills would have been a great TV series about a woman solving one girl's problem every week. Oh my god, you're so right. That is what this was, was a pilot that somehow got turned into a movie. This makes so much more sense now. This movie had a budget of 18 million and only made back 8.5 million. It was critically not well received. So it has like a cult following now, but it wasn't uh, considered much at the time. I, you know, I would say that this is not a powerhouse work. <laughs> it was very cute and there were some funny moments, but this is a pretty light piece of work. It's, it's good fun, but it's pretty cotton candy. I'm really interested to dig into all of the things that you felt about this movie because I was obviously clouded by a heavy fog of nostalgia watching it. So as a first time visitor to this version of Beverly Hills, what are your thoughts? It's kind of funny. I don't have like an overall thought. There's so many random cameos. It's just a very strange little movie that is basically putting Shelley Long on her own with a bunch of kids. And I think she might have benefited from more of an ensemble adult cast because I don't think she connects with the kids all that well. Like, she's kind of fun with them, but she doesn't do as well as, like, for instance, Shelley Morrison, who plays Rosa, she really kind of connects with the kids and you kind of get that vibe from her. But it's Shelley Long just has such a patrician, erudite vibe to her, which I'm pretty sure is a holdover from Cheers that it's hard to see her as a mom. Also, every adult in this movie is discussing very inappropriate topics in front of all the children. I think this is an extremely Gen X movie because it's a movie where the boomers are all failing all the time and it's up to the Gen X kids, i.e. the generation of kids who raise themselves. And it's just a bunch of columphing, kind of terrible adults causing a whole bunch of problems that the kids wind up having to solve. That's actually a very insightful observation about this movie. I think that you're not wrong sounds really patronizing, but I like <laughs> I think that that's correct. The adults in this movie are useless. Well, it's not just that, it's that they are they have to be handled and dealt with. At least Shelley Long and Craig T. Nelson's kid, she's just witnessing like bad behavior where her parents are like getting her involved in the aspects of their deteriorating marriage. But how about Velda's kid? 
Like, she's being actively taught to lie, cheat, and steal her way to the top and just has a bad mom. Like, that kid at the end runs off with the trophy. She has not learned some good lessons. I remembered Velda being obviously the villain of the film, but it never really struck me until I was an adult how horrible of a human being she is. She's really bad. Like, she needs to take a deep look at the way in which she's carried herself and reflect on the choices that she has made and the priorities that she has because she is in there cutting down bridges and teaching her child to cheat. It's weird. She is putting the lives of many children in danger. She's sending them into a poisonous snake area. Well, technically her child is sending them into a poisonous snake area, but still. No, there are a lot of times when I was like, oh, she does not care if these children not only have a good time, but literally live or die. She very much screams of a woman who needs to get laid. Like she has nothing else going for her except for her weird quasi-military approach to this like outdoor girls group. She has a purple heart on at one point. (laughs) She has full military badges strapped to her uniform. I did notice in this for the first time that she wears her wilderness girl uniform just around. Yeah, she wears it all the time. I mean, the real lesson of this movie is that some of the other adults and not the children should reach out to Velda and see if she's doing okay, because it seems like she's lost the plot a little bit. Oh, for sure, she's a mess. Uh, It's amazing that she's not fully fired well before this because it just seems like she's not really like doing well. The older woman who plays the scout sort of leader leader, she's really great. She's got a great line at the end. Um, Does she strike you as being minus a few buttons that's just delivered in an extremely dry way that I really like? I don't know who that actress is. Is she someone I should know? That is Audra Lindley who played Mrs. Roper on Three's Company. Oh, no way. I really have to imagine that your instinct is correct and that this was supposed to be a television program that didn't get picked up. They clearly had everyone cast because all of the kid actors were really big at the time. I mean, all of the discussion about the making of this movie makes it clear that they actually did want to make a movie. I think that you're right, though, that it was just a collection of people who had only ever done TV. And so all of the television instincts are so plainly visible. Yeah, I guess I would say that is what the movie suffers from a little bit, is that there's a lot of smaller performance, very TV performances. I was very excited to learn that the girl who played Harriet from Small Wonder actually can act and that the direction was the problem and that you shouldn't just have one child speak in a monotone while everyone else shouts around her. All of the children actually do a pretty solid job, I have to say. Like, they're differentiated. They each have, like, a thing. I mean, there's enough of them that they each have exactly one personality trait, but that's enough for a child actor to go on. Yeah, the kids are great. And the way they introduce the kids is very good. You know, each one pulling up in a different car. So you see kind of the oak tree and the acorn, (laughs) I Mm -hmm. guess I would say. The setup actually I do want to talk about because I think the movie does a great job in its opening of building the world. I mean, the opening cartoon tells you exactly what you're about to see. The characters are all introduced with a really clear, this is who you're about to talk to situation. I think Shelley Long and Craig T. Nelson both get that in a big way. I think uh, Shirley Morrison as Rosa gets like a very clear example of like, she works for them, but she is emotionally invested in this family to the point that she (laughs) cries about it. I'm extremely glad that Rosa gets to step out from her housekeeper persona towards the later part of the film. I do actually... We'll step back to this bit. I I do actually believe that the end of the film should be Shelley Long rejecting Craig D. Nelson and that instead 
Rosa should move into one of the bedrooms, that Shelley Long and Rosa should raise the children together in the way that they deserve. That is a very 2020 ending to a very 1989 movie. I was really actually pissed that she got back with Craig T. Nelson at the end of the movie. That is when it is most clearly a movie aimed at a preteen girl audience because... I think they very much saw Hannah wants her parents to get together and doesn't understand that people break up. She just wants her parents to be together. And so we get the ending that someone Hannah's age would have wanted and not the ending that someone Shelley Long's age would have pursued. Except that Craig T. Nelson has a really good line early in the film when he's picking up his barbells. He's like, you'll be a happier kid with parents who are happily divorced than you will be with parents who are unhappily married. And that's really true. And then at the end, the movie's just like, well, never mind. They're still not good for each other at all. (laughs) But like, at the very end of the movie, he says he likes her now that she's softer somehow. It's weird, too, because the movie tries to paint this as Shelley Long having grown in some tangible way, which A, I don't know is true, and B, I don't know is a relationship-saving kind of growth. What does that have to do with him that she has become a wilderness girl leader? Well, the really irritating thing he says at the very top of the film is you had such potential, which I wrote down and then right next to it, I wrote, sir, shut the fuck up. And like, he doesn't really change at all. Like, I don't know if he wants a cookie for having attended a single wilderness girls meeting, but yeah, his wife growing and changing, that wasn't the problem in their relationship. Yeah, it's weird that a lot of their relationship stuff comes down to he complains about her not parenting Hannah enough and I'm like she's the only one who's ever shown parenting Hannah like that's an insane complaint he fed her a whole bunch of diet cokes and was like just super anxious and Hannah had to be like hey can you please take it down a notch like he's not a good parent either it seemed like it was the first time they'd ever interacted yes it does not seem as though he had ever spent any solo time caring for that child or any child. I mean, every part of Craig T. Nelson's character makes approximately zero sense. I don't know what she ever saw in him. Like, why does she want him back? He did open that jar. I feel like Rosa could handle opening the jar. (laughs) That is... (laughs) I had never taken into account the Rosa filling the husband space reading, but I think that really changes this movie for me in a way that demands a sequel. At the very least, I definitely feel like Shelley Long should adopt Carla Gugino's character, who has really terrible parents and they're just completely absentee. And the movie is it's like, oh, aren't they bad? <laughs> there really is no resolution to the fact that Carla Gugino is left completely to her own devices for the majority of this film, it seems. I mean, presumably there's like an entire staff that are caring for her, but still. That's one of the things about this movie that I think is really emblematic of its time as well, which is that movies in the 1980s like loved rich people. I mean, the 1980s just loved rich people full stop. But there's also this weird tension where they're obsessed with wealth and obsessed with like showy demonstrations of wealth, but then also want to make rich people seem very silly and vapid. But it's clearly also like aspirational. Like the theme of this movie is that like the rich girls showed up the poorer kids. A good example of that 
is the cookie sales situation where they are congratulated for not just buying the cookies themselves, but are still throwing lavish events to sell cookies that the other troops clearly could not pull off. Yeah, and that's viewed as like a good thing. You're right. There's like a moral choice. She's like, well, we could just buy the cookies ourselves, but instead let's throw a gala like any normal neighborhood would do on a weekday night. Yes, I'm sure all the other troops are having fashion shows with Robin Leach, Pia Zadora, and Dr. Joyce Brothers, the three most 1989 cameos of all time. <laughs> Those cameos were amazing. Uh, there's also a nice casting of the woman who plays the romance novel writer, who was also on Dallas, but she was very glamorous and does look like Catherine Zeta-Jones with a whole lot of hairspray going on. Yeah, she, as a character... Her two jobs are to occasionally be Shelley Long's friend, but to mostly sit in a corner and speak into a handheld tape recorder <laughs> about incredibly lewd happenings. I can't even remember whose mom that lady is. She is Punky Brewster's friend's mom. Got it. There were a couple of things, especially related to the kids that don't read super well in 2020. The first one is that I think we're all glad that Jasmine doesn't learn how policing actually works. I've seen that scene a hundred times, but recent events really did put it in a very different light. This is from a different time, and also her dad is getting the O.J. Simpson treatment. Oh, it didn't occur to me that her dad is supposed to be O.J. Simpson. Of course he is. Because the other girls' kids are supposed to be Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos, literally explicitly. Mm -hmm. They left in 1986, and America, like, didn't get over it for almost a decade. There are so many Marcos jokes in this movie in particular, but also like throughout the culture for really quite some time. I mean, I want to eventually cover the just sheer amount of casual racism in this movie, but if you want to go on a Marco-specific rant... No, it's it's going to be about Tiffany, actually. Go ahead. <laughs> There's a cute scene earlier where she does some jewelry appraising, and it's like not clear that that's a thing at all. It's just like kind of a cute scene, and it just happens that this one kid is doing the jewelry appraising. However, then there's the scene where Kelly Martin's character doesn't have $10. And inexplicably, Shelley Long does not give the child the $10. A, a different child comes and gives her the money that she needs and then tries to charge her interest. And that kind of like did my little spidey sense. And then in the very next scene, she's giving her the badge for jewelry appraising. Hanigman is an Ashkenazi name. The girl who plays her is also Jewish. And I didn't like it. I did not like it. I mean, we are going to have to address the many, many racial stereotypes that informed the writing of this film. I've never really looked at the Cookie Time song that hard before. Poor Shelley Morrison is in the background shaking maracas. Just one of the many times that she is thrown in as like, you know, do something Mexican. And then, of course, the little black girl is in a Tina Turner wig singing. Which in fairness to the film, may have just been because it doesn't appear that anyone else in the movie can sing at all. Shelley Long, girl, what are you doing? Like, why did they even try to have her sing? She's awful, as is Tiffany. Yes, to be fair, Tasha Scott plays Jasmine, and she does just beat the shit out of that song. It's good. And to go back to our earlier point about being scared for her when she gets pulled over when her family gets pulled over by the cops of course she has to react that way because we need to like point out that she's the gonna be the sassy black girl in the film which is very irritating as well yeah it is 
not subtle why she was chosen for the sassy one. Actually, as we're pointing out the singing thing, I should raise the point that Jenny Lewis, who plays Hannah Neffler, went on to be a musical sensation. She's the lead singer of Rilo Kylie and now has a successful solo career. Oh, good for her. I don't know if she could sing at the time, but she can certainly sing now. She's sold many an album. But instead, they gave it to the kid from Small Wonder who just bleated out something extremely strange. I also did a lot more looking at, like, who can dance and who can't in this movie, because there are a lot of dance sequences. Shelley Long actually can nail a dance. I was pretty convinced by all of her dance teaching. Yeah. It's very clear why certain girls were put in the front of that scene and certain girls are put in the back. That is extremely true. Another way I can tell that this movie is for boomers and not aimed at me is that I don't know what the Freddy is, man. Like, I get that it is a joke and it's a weird dance, but like... I don't know that the Freddy was ever a big dance. I literally think it's just because her husband is Fred Neffler. Oh, do you think they... (laughs) Did you just catch that? She says... In that scene, like, life's ironic, isn't it? She teaches them a dance called the Freddy while going through a divorce with Freddie Neffler. Oh, no, I didn't pick that up at all. I did not remember that his name was Fred or Fred Neffler, to be perfectly honest. Like, he's just Craig T. Nelson. Like, come on. He's playing a very slightly more acerbic version of the character that he played in Coach and that he plays in life. I did enjoy seeing him in the sort of muffler robot outfit. That was delightful. It is funny that Craig T. Nelson was cast in this. Like, I think he's cast as someone that we're supposed to believe that she should want to go back to. Yeah. But he is neither charming nor exceptionally attractive. So I couldn't see what the draw was. Like, there's a scene when she (laughs) goes to... When she goes, yeah, she goes over to, like, watch him do Tai Chi through the window and then have him open a jar. And I'm like... Is this supposed to be what makes me deeply attracted to Craig T. Nelson? Because it is not working. When he opened that door, I was just like, huh. It's like it wasn't even like dad bod shit. I was just like, oh, you're just like a regular old man in his 40s. I mean, standards have changed since the 80s, but it was surprising just like how completely average he seems throughout. Not even average. Like he makes a real point of talking about the things that he wants to see changed in her and the growth that he wants to see from her. But we don't get any sense of what she's interested in in growth from him It appears to be nothing. She just wants him back, which, okay. So he doesn't grow at all. There's no, like, he sleeps with a totally different woman. And we're just kind of like, okay. I will say, though, that that real estate agent has an extremely good point, which is that she says of Shelley Long later in the movie, she's really sick. And it's like, yeah, girl, like she's using all these children as like her therapy supports. So we should talk about Shelley Long because she was actively trying to build a film career. And the weight of this movie is put squarely on her shoulders. Yeah. She's working very hard. I will give her that. I mean, working in a way that is visible at times, but she is working very hard. I just don't know if I think she's a great movie actor. I think she's great in an ensemble of adults. She's so zany. Like this movie desperately needed a straight man. And the fact that all the straight men were kids who all had their own problems sometimes made it a little unwieldy. I think she was saddled with an almost impossible task. So something like the scene where she has to save the fondue from the rainstorm, I just don't think is salvageable. She does her best, but like, 
there's no actor on the planet who's going to make rolling through the mud in a fur coat so she can give fondue to 12-year-olds a thing that I want to watch. There were parts of the movie that were genuinely funny, and there were parts of the movie that were just a little try-hard, where they were trying to wring comedy out of a scene that was just mildly amusing. To contrast that, I think that her delivery of the horror story is spot-on perfect. I mean, she has a lot of charm and a lot of charisma and a lot of the movie is carried on that because, again, she's the only adult in every scene. It's weird to me that Betty Thomas didn't act more after this because I think she's actually incredible as Velda. I think she probably thought she was going to live on that Hill Street Blues residual money forever. Yeah, she's pretty great. I mean, she's bringing a lot of charm to a part that if in the hands of a lesser actor would probably just be actually insufferable. Like, she's a, just a bad person. Like, she's bad. She is not a good influence on all of these young girls over which she holds sway. Yeah, I think bringing actual comedy to a role that is deplorable as written takes some skill. I could watch Velda Plender all day. It's a fun role. I mean, she's a nice, easy, complete villain. Like, she has no redeeming qualities. She's not complicated at all. She's just an evil bitch who wants to stick it to some kids via a woman that she hates. <laughs> I haven't watched this movie in at least a decade, but I have such fond memories of it. It was really interesting to watch with a more critical eye and see that at the very end, after needing to be literally carried by a gaggle of children, she just walks to her van. <laughs> She's, and then drives, I think, with the bad foot. <laughs> it's not totally clear to me. But the, the troop leader, again, has some really great lines, one of which is towards the end, which is, they're dragging something. It looks like an animal. Must be Velda. It's very funny and, and extremely welcome. I have exceptionally fond memories of Audra Lindley in this movie. She doesn't have that much to do, but she does all of it perfectly. Okay, can we talk a little bit about the structure of the Wilderness Girls? Because for <laughs> some of these people... It seems like it's a full-time gig, and it's very militarized, which again is extremely 1980s. I don't understand how there are people seemingly doing this with the entirety of their lives. I imagine with the Girl Scouts, there are probably administrative people higher up for whom it is a full-time job, and then there are parents running the sort of day-to-day. -day. It does seem strange that they are entrusting only parents to lead children into the wilderness. I gotta tell you, this brought back a whole bunch of bad brownie memories for me. I had, a, <laughs> I was a terrible brownie, as I'm sure you can't imagine. Um, what with my joy of joining things and general friendliness. And my brownie troop leader was just a harridan. She was basically a Velda. She was like a dark haired Velda. She was so mean. It was so, it just brought back so many bad memories. And I was like, oh yeah, this is why I didn't participate in this. So much of the wilderness girls in this movie just seems like a lawsuit waiting to happen. I was not expecting the jamboree to be an overnight I thought it was going to be a party. I was extremely surprised to learn that it was a wild competition with trophies and angst and just fucking cutthroat shit. It was so weird. The jamboree is not set up at all and seldom explained throughout. So it takes a little digging to realize that there are four troops competing and not just the two of them. And also, if there are four troops competing... How is Troop Beverly Hills even second? Because they have to be, because they have to win. This is just the bad news bearers of Girl Scouting. Also, everyone in the audience 
all of the Wilderness Girls, Craig T. Nelson, absolutely everyone knows the Beverly Hills Troops specific song that I believe Shelley Long made up on the spot as they were marching back. <laughs> so there are a lot of things that really defy a lot of logic. So speaking of things that make no sense in this movie, Shelley Long's outfits are so outrageously 1980s. I want to talk about a couple of things that I love and a couple of things that I hate, if you would indulge me for a moment. Oh, I will indulge anyone talking about the outfits from Troop Beverly Hills at any time. <laughs> okay. So one, the thing I really miss about the 80s is mixed polka dots, where you've got the white background with the black polka dots and then the uh, black background with the white polka dots and also red. So many people, and I remember dressing this way myself, just looked like Minnie Mouse all of the time. It's a very confusing aesthetic. I also really enjoy that mermaid dress that she takes $600 off at the very beginning of the film. The black and white like zebra print with the mermaid dress. Oh, oh God, sure. It's, so it's missing a bead. It's missing a bead. However, an outfit that isn't quite as successful is her mustard yellow board shorts with a fucking yellow top that doesn't match. She only wears it in a very short scene where she's just coming and going. It was extremely jarring. So I will disagree with you in that I think every single molecule of clothing in this movie is perfect, but I understand where you're coming from. <laughs> that that outfit- Are you kidding? I am not kidding. I find- everything she wears to be the same level of balls out insane and thus the same level of wonderful. So you like the outfit that she wears at the pool party? Yes. Uh, w without knowing what that sentence even was going to end like, yes. <laughs> I disagree. I think that some of the outfits are too much. This is that thing again where they're kind of ragging on the lifestyles of the rich and famous even as they like secretly want to be them. I think she is intentionally dressed in some outfits that are supposed to look completely ridiculous even for late 1980s. Oh, I am certain that I'm supposed to hate some of what she's wearing. She <laughs> wears a dress to greet the new wilderness girls that is fully perpendicular to her body. It is parallel to the <laughs> ground. It is a table that she is wearing. It may or may not be puff painted. It is ghastly. And I could look at it all day. <laughs> I do like the scene where they go to shop for the outfits and she meets Mrs. Harriet Winslow. Obviously. Yes, Joe Marie um, Payton. I was so excited to see her. I, I love her. She's great. She, we just saw her. She was just on an episode of Chopped, which was extremely strange. <laughs> I did like the thing where she's always making her own outfits and like trying to kind of dial it up to about a 76. But some of the outfits beggared belief that a human would wear them. That's me. But I am not. I am absolutely going to defer to you in terms of like fashion. I've worn the same shirt for like the last three days. We're also coming at this from different perspectives in that I saw this movie when I was nine, and thus I believe that that is just how some people dressed because I had very few other examples. <laughs> Seems fair. This movie has a lot of similarity. The fact that you said that the director had also directed Revenge of the Nerds made a lot of sense. I would say that this movie also had a very Police Academy vibe to it for me. I think kind of what you're getting at without saying it is that this movie reminds you of many other movies because it is incredibly derivative. <laughs> yeah, it's a little generic. I'm not gonna lie. It is a lot generic. There's nothing <laughs> original about this movie at all. Do you know what else it has is a little bit of an Amy Heckerling feeling. 
Mm. Um, I can see the parts of Clueless that came out of this. Yeah, it's funny. I do think, weirdly, though this movie was neither particularly groundbreaking nor particularly well-received, I do think it's weirdly influential. There are a lot of pieces that I've seen in other things. Now, maybe that's just because, as you point out, that it's very derivative. And so it's just pulling together a lot of pieces that were already in the culture. So it's not a surprise to see them in other places. It does have a very nice feminine empowerment piece, but it's a very third wave feminism, which is like, you can buy your way to equality, which it turned out was not the case. Um, Sex in the City also tried it and it still wasn't the case. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I mean, like, that's my big critique of Sex in the City is that it's like, if you can buy $400 shoes, you got it, girl. My understanding is that the 25th reunion, a lot of the women who were girls at the time talked about how empowering they found it. And I can see that that's probably really the case that like, I feel like Shelley Long herself was probably a really good role model for these girls, even as Shelley Long's character is a terrible role model for these girls. It's funny because I think that in some ways the feminism in some subtle air quotes of this movie did play into why it is considered, I don't want to say classic, but it is well-remembered now. I do think that young girls who grew up with it did get what was considered empowerment at the time out of it. So I, I understand why someone would look back on this movie and remember it fondly as like, yes, though I am currently someone who is sitting on a couch that costs thousands of dollars, I could one day take over the woods. <laughs> or the world, but not actually. We'll let the men handle that and we'll just shop. It's a little bit of vapid feminism, but I appreciate the movie for trying. A lot of other movies were not trying at all in the late 80s because this was in the midst of feminist backlash, though. So. And there is a very clear sense that though they did win the Jamboree, A, the main prize is that they get their picture taken, and B, none of these people will ever touch a leaf again. Yeah, I mean, they learn absolutely nothing about wilderness, which I'm actually okay with. The thing that I think is the most feminist about the movie is not the sort of buy your way to success stuff, but is the there are lots of different kinds of ways to be a girl. Some of them are that you are really good at stuff in the woods, and some of them are that you're really good at getting your nails done. And those are both acceptable. It's just that in the late 80s and 90s, it was very much construed as like, you can use capitalism to achieve equality. And I think the movie has a very subtle understanding that there are lots of different ways to be a girl, and that's the part I like. It's funny. I think the movie is more successful in the credits cartoon than anywhere else in showing how these women can use their unique skills to get through the wilderness. For instance, when bees are attacking them and they use hair dryers to blow them away, that's the kind of creative thinking that doesn't really show up in a lot of places in the Jamboree, but probably should. Yeah, I would say that the cartoon set me up to expect a lot more wilderness than this movie really delivered. I thought there was gonna be a bear at the least. There is a skunk and it does get turned into a hat. What? Oh, is that what happens to the skunk? I have a note that says, what did Velda do to the skunk? So we cut from her holding the skunk by its tail to her stirring a stew and wearing a skunk hat. <laughs> I totally missed that. I enjoyed that I was worried enough about the skunk to wonder where it had gone, but not perceptive enough to find out where it had gone. Her hat still has a head on it, a full <laughs> face. 
It is ghastly. That's amazing. I don't want to derail that, but one of the other things that I think we should loop back in with the uh, discussions of casual racism is the red feathers and also Shelley Long in an actual headdress. The squash blossom is beautiful that she has. However, that shit is just racist like there's no way to get around it like in the 1980s just no white people thought that native american folks mattered at all there is something so purely blind about shelly long running amongst mansions with like a full i'm sure inaccurate feathered headdress and like fringed leather pants to tell a girl that she's not too poor to live in Beverly Hills. But only if another child gives her $10. I mean, it's it's still, the scene is completely wild. Obviously, if you're about to take off running in heels, you'd probably just go ahead and put that headdress down. Doesn't seem that responsible to do. So like, I don't, you're right. There is something so blind about it. It's like, it didn't even occur to anyone making this movie that having an entire troop of girls with red feathers which i get that they're trying to find a way to like identify the girls but they could have easily have been the blue bandanas the thing about the red feathers is that everyone else is just identified by the neighborhood they're from i know are they do they not have homes what's going on it's so strange that everyone else is like team mar vista and team beverly hills and that or like troop obviously but then Where are the red feathers from? Literally just the woods? Do they live there full time? Perhaps they are hobo children who must go to sell cookies in a variety of neighborhoods. I do like that the ultimate undercutting of the red feathers is that if they had just followed the course and done what they're good at, they would have won easily, but they spent so much time trying to fuck over the other team that they shot themselves in the foot. And there is no responsibility for that put on the adult, one of the kids' mothers who is leading them. They're just kind of like, aren't these kids bad? And it's like, well, no, the kids are the kids are just kids. They're being led by a woman who's legitimately terrible. Oh yeah, Velda's child is going to grow up to need a great deal of therapy. Can we talk about a major plot point of the film, which is them crossing the log bridge? Please, I have commentary, but I want to hear yours. That log seems real wide why couldn't everyone just crawl across the log and i would also i I use the word crawl and i'd like to use it again which is that why would you march over that when you could just kind of shimmy it's a real safe if you've got six points touching the log that seems a lot better than two that log is the worst plot contrivance of all time a it's very clearly a fake log that looks absolutely nothing like a real tree it is a full like HR puffin stuff creation. They shoot it from two angles, and at one point it's clearly like three foot around. And then when they show her on top of the log, when it's the fake log, it's like six inches across. <laughs> it makes no sense. And if the audience can figure out three ways to get across, they can figure out one. Yeah, I also would have sent the kids across because they got like a lower center of gravity. That's me. I also am notably child childless <laughs> well obviously you're out to kill children not like shelly long that's me <laughs> <laughs> i mean this whole movie is kind of out to kill children let's be fair i mean it does seem like it's out to sort of emotionally damage them like when the kids want to like wind the troop down i'm like it's not the worst idea girls like maybe you could go in with a troop with some normal children and not have being around the very, very rich be your only life experience. Whichever girl has the out-of-work actor for a father, which they have someone amongst their troop who is not as rich as the rest of them, and no one ever tries to downplay that as not actually shameful. They don't learn. Yeah, here's 
super right. They're just like, oh man, can somebody give her $10? Like a big thing about this movie is that while each of the individual girls learns some sort of like lesson or has a thing to get over, they never as a group learn from each other. It would be much more interesting, but also much more complicated if the girl whose father is out of work and if the girl who's in a lot of therapy and if all of them had like a mutual understanding of each other, but each of them has an individual breakthrough that they never connect to their friends with. Yeah, all of the girls interact and have a relationship with Shelley Long, but none of them really seem to have a relationship with each other. That's the kind of thing we would explore if this went to series. I'm really disappointed, actually. I think I would have watched this television show a lot. But overall, I think this movie was cute. I don't think it was gonna be a seminal work that hits me as a woman who is neither a boomer, nor a Gen Xer, nor a young girl. I can definitely see how if you were a kid, this movie would be very fun and very funny. There is some very good dry humor that I enjoyed. I think my favorite line in the entire show was marital status, shaky. (laughs) 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 That really made me laugh. And it was one of the first things that happened. So it set me up to know that I was like in for a good time. But I feel like I really would have enjoyed watching the TV series of this show, even as an adult. But the movie just felt a little bland. Yeah, it's funny because I don't know for a fact that this was all driven by Shelley Long's desire to be a movie star. But I feel like some of that informed the fact that this had to be a blockbuster movie, even though literally everything about this says TV pilot. And, you know, I don't want to tell Shelley Long how to live her life, but I think she was very good on TV. And I don't think she's as successful. I just don't think it's her medium. Yeah, film agrees with you. <laughs> Apparently it did, because she, did, she didn't make it, right? Like, she she kind of did this, and you said Money Pit. She did this, she did Money Pit. Oh, uh, Outrageous Fortune. She really tried, but, like, people liked her on TV. Yeah. And so it made sense that we would try to put her in movies, and for whatever reason, movies just didn't happen for her. She doesn't quite have the presence And I do think that the movie really improves in its back half when Mrs. Quick from Sabrina and Rosa, um, her true life partner, get more involved. And I do really like that they take Rosa out of being like just a housekeeper character and actually make her an equal. I think once those three women are acting off each other, the sort of vibe of the movie gets going a little bit more and there's a little bit more energy. It's an hour and 45 minutes long and some of the scenes seem long. Again, this is a movie that I think could be cut back probably about 15 minutes easily. And I think that that would improve it because there were just some scenes that I was like, okay, we get the point. Like, let's keep it moving. I do want to give a shout out to Shelley Morrison, who is imbuing Rosa with far more than the script gave her. She's really selling on everything. Like, that first scene where she's crying while they're fighting is It's an insane reaction, but she really sells it. The thing that's insane about the script is that Craig T. Nelson and Shelley Long openly and chaotically talk about their impending divorce in front of their child. But then he's like, don't talk about this in front of Rosa. It's a cute character choice. She's really great. I think that she's got almost the best energy. I would prefer this movie if Rosa was the main character. (laughs) She's relatable. She's the most relatable person in the entire film. I think if... Your remake of this movie was like Shelley Long and Rosa teaming up. That's actually like a perfect situation. Chris, we have improved 
almost all of the films that we have reviewed. And it's a little bit you, it's a little bit me, and it's a perfect pairing. And it just goes to show that we should make a podcast listened to by someday maybe dozens. Hollywood execs, are you tuning in? Because we have all the answers. We are script doctors and we will fix your fucking movie. We'll make them a little bit weirder than you had hoped for, but but they'll be better. I'm not saying they have to be in like a sexual triad. I'm just saying those three women should live together and raise kids. They got it going. Listen, I'm a million percent on board with everything you're saying. Chris, this is your movie. Any final thoughts as we wrap up? So going back down memory lane, I recognize that I gave this movie more credit than it deserves because I (laughs) I first encountered it as a closeted nine to ten year old. But there are things about it that still genuinely delighted me. I will say when Shelley Long is describing the wilderness girl's uniform she at one point says well the material's a nightmare from hell and (laughs) i didn't know that that was lodged in my brain but a nightmare from hell is a specific phrase that i've hauled out many a time yeah i've heard you say that actually i didn't know it was from this i didn't know it was from this either so (laughs) this movie has affected my whole life and i would say that certainly some of my drag persona can be directly traced to Shelley Long's line deliveries. Okay, I can see that too. So I thank this movie for helping me become the big queer asshole that I am now. And you know what? That makes me love the movie. (laughs) Because I love the big queer asshole that you are as well. Oh, I love you too. Do you have final thoughts on this, a film that I forced you to watch, even though it is admittedly mediocre? I would say that my impression going in was that you had pitched it as hilarious I would say I found it amusing at times. It was perfectly serviceable. It was fine. I definitely paused it a couple of times. And my partner was like, is that movie still going? And I was like, yes. He's like, how long is it? And I was like, just an hour and 45 minutes. (laughs) I think it is a stunning example of how much the 1980s both was enraptured with and despised very materialistic wealth. Overall, I'm not sure I'll dive into this one again. But I do think that it will be in my brain of the few lines that I really connected with. It's nice to see a a woman written show that is about what does it look like to take a whole bunch of different young girls and try to teach them to be women when they're not good at doing the things that they're trying to be told they should do. So I like that piece of it. Um, there's a lot of very bad 1980s casual racism that I think is a little stomach churning. Uh, So I don't know that I would necessarily watch again, but I can definitely see that parts of it will stick in my head and I can definitely understand why they stuck in yours, especially being young. Well, I'm glad that you replayed that favorite with me, but it is now time for you to choose a favorite for me to replay. What have you chosen for me? So we bounced back to 1989, and this week we're going to bounce even further into the 2000s with 2014's Guardians of the Galaxy. Chris, have you seen Guardians of the Galaxy? I did see it once, but I will admit that it is now in a full blender with the pop culture zeitgeist of all Marvel whatevers. I think you're going to like it. It is the Marvel movie that I enjoy the most. 
Except for Thor Ragnarok. All right, I'm looking forward to it because I have a few recollections of this film that I watched at least part of. There's a raccoon in it. It's great. I remember that. All right, great. Please remember to follow us on Instagram at Replaying Favorites and on Twitter at Replaying Faves, F-A-V-S. And whatever else you like to do with podcasts, we'd love you to do it with us also. Join us next week to talk about that nonsense. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Yeah, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. What's really great is that I'm terrible with names and faces. <laughs> like it's really a, it's really a one two punch.